Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Ted. I recently retired uh, from First Baptist Church in Georgetown. It's kind of interesting. I'm here this morning speaking at Garden City, City Chapel, and Robert Shaw is speaking down at the First Baptist Church of Georgetown. Uh, he's there interim, and I thank God for that. I'm excited, and he'll do a wonderful job transitioning them in the days to come. But it's a privilege for me to be with you this morning. Uh, uh, Ricky called me or texted me maybe two months ago and told me he needed a dynamic and, and gifted and charismatic speaker this morning. That guy couldn't come, so you're stuck with me this morning. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll just get to the Word of God. Father, thank you so much for this privilege to be here this morning and for us. Lord, to find ourselves in this place, uh, being able now to open up your word, having worshipped you so beautifully through song, and now to worship you through your precious word. And we thank you that you are the living Lord, the living Savior who's given us a living hope. And thank you that this is the living word of God. May it be alive here today and speak, Lord, to our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One Sunday, I walked into our sanctuary, and there's a young couple there to greet me. And they had their little son, about five years old. And they said, Pastor Ted, uh, little Johnny has a song he wants to sing for you. And I said, man, I'd love to hear it. And uh, he started to sing. Predictably, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. And and I want to encourage that little fella, and I really did. I reached in my wallet and pulled out a dollar bill, and I said, uh, Johnny, that happens to be one of my most favorite songs in the whole wide world. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody sing it better than you. And I just want to encourage you and give you this dollar bill. And uh, little Johnny looked at that dollar bill, and then he looked up at me. He looked back down at that dollar bill, and he looked back up at me. He looked, and then he looked, and he said, I'm going to sing it again. <laughs> really did. You know, there's a song that we're going to have to sing in life, whether we want to or not. And uh, it's a song of, of trials and tribulations and challenges and even uh, persecution against those who love the Lord. And uh, I know we have young people this morning, and I want to encourage you, it just gets harder as you follow Christ. And, uh, but, but Peter reminds us that no matter what we're facing, whether it's a trial, a tribulation, or some kind of persecution from the world for our faith, we can have joy no matter what. I sometimes forget that. You sometimes forget that. But can I remind you what the Bible says, we can have joy no matter what. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Why Peter? Well, when I retired, I wanted to stay fresh and spiritually alive. And so I still meet in my study, which happens to be my garage, because my mom had moved in and I moved out. And that's where I spend my time with the Lord. And I went to 1 Peter just to see what God would have to say to me. And it's been a blessing, and I hope it's an encouragement to you this morning. Now, I'm, I'm old, as you can tell. I'm gray-headed. 
And uh, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. So I'm going to do what I normally do. I like to have words sort of guide me so I can hang my thoughts on them. And I've got four words I want to give you this morning. Tribulation, confrontation, affirmation, and jubilation. I want to say that again. Transformation, confrontation, affirmation, and jubilation that we receive from the Lord. So first, I want us to look at some uh, some. A transformation that's right here in the scripture. It's at least alluded to in the very opening verse. Now keep in mind, I, I, I met the Lord that Monday morning after I retired. And I came fresh and new to a passage I really hadn't studied for some time. I'd just come from preaching through the whole gospel of Mark. And so I come to First Peter chapter 1 and the first word, the first name is Peter. Now, if you've been walking with the Lord as long as I have, first thought that crosses your mind, uh, this is going to be a train wreck. I mean, every time you look in Scripture, Peter is one moment tracking with the Lord, and then he jumps the tracks, and he's a train wreck. For example, Jesus is telling his disciples for the first time, or one of the occasions at least, that he's heading to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed and handed over to the authorities, and he's going to be put to death. And the Bible tells us Simon Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Can you imagine the arrogance of rebuking the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't know what he said. I I imagine that he said something like, Hey, 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 Jesus, you're going to have to stop talking about all this betrayal and being handed over to the authorities and being put to death and being crucified. Man, we'll never build a mega church that way. You've got to change the message. You've got to be positive and, and give people hope. And you've got to preach some health and wealth and prosperity. Man, we'll build a church like that. I don't know what he said. But I do know what Jesus did next. If you look carefully at the passage, the Bible tells us, that Jesus basically turned his back on Simon Peter and looked at the disciples and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, you've just been rebuked when Jesus can say, You've opened your mouth and what has come out of you has come from Satan himself. He's a train wreck. On another occasion, Peter's up on the mountaintop with Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus begins to show his radiant Shekinah glory, and there's suddenly Moses and Elijah. And you remember what Simon Peter did? He starts running his mouth and says, Hey, let's build this, and let's build that, and let's do this. And, and the Bible says that suddenly God shows up. I mean, God of heaven speaks audibly, and he says, This is my son. Listen to him. Now, can I give you a Georgetown redneck interpretation of what that means? Shut up and listen. Zip it. I mean, you're in the presence of the second person of the Holy Trinity. You need to listen to every word he says because you need need it in your life. Train wreck. And then we get to the end of the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is telling the disciples, man, I'm I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to 
hand me over to the authorities, and you guys, y'all going to scatter. You're going to be like rats on a, a sinking ship. You're, you're going to scatter. And what does Simon Peter do? <laughs> hey, Jesus, you don't know me. Man, I'm not. They might run. I'm not running. I'll, ta- I'll take a bullet for you. I will die for you, Jesus. Now, the church, before the morning really broke, what happened? Simon Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Now, I'm not a big numerology guy, but I know enough in Scripture to know that three is a a number that usually suggests completeness or perfection. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you see the three, the completeness of the Godhead. Peter denies Jesus three times. It's significant. It it speaks of a complete, full-throttle abandonment of his faith in Christ. I mean, Peter is just a constant train wreck over and over in Scripture. And then as I thought, Peter, here's a train wreck. I read the next passage. Peter, an apostle, of Jesus Christ. G- Peter is a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's a, that's a huge deal. I, I don't know enough of a way to communicate what a big deal that it is. Paul said that the apostles, along with the prophets, are the guys who lay the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. When you go back to Acts chapter 2 and the disciples are meeting daily, what are they doing? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer. But they're not listening to Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or the Jewish leaders. They're listening to the apostles' teaching and doctrine. Why? Because the apostles are the ones who walked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, Then they met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and received a personal commission from the lips of Jesus to take it down to the next generation. They're the guys who laid the foundation of the church. And can I I mention to you that Peter, Jesus says to Peter one day, and I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you buy on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I know there's a lot of interpretations of what that means. Certainly it includes us that as we take the keys of the gospel and, and, and share that the door of heaven opens up to those who believe. But it speaks first to Simon Peter. This is irrefutable. Simon Peter is the guy who shows up at Pentecost and he takes the keys of the kingdom And he preaches and opens the door, and 3,000 Jews come into the kingdom of God. And then it is Simon Peter who shows up at Cornelius' house shortly thereafter, a a, a Gentile, an Italian centurion. And again, he's the guy who takes the keys and opens the door, and Cornelius and his entire Gentile household comes into the kingdom of God. Of God, And so now, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, rich, 
poor, red, yellow, black, white, every tongue, tribe, and nation can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Now, Peter's not the Pope. But Peter was the uncontested leader of those disciples and apostles in Jerusalem. I want you to think with me for a moment. How many, how many people do you think in the last 2,000 years has come into the kingdom of God somehow, some way, because of the wake that Simon Peter left in his life of ministry? I mean, how many sermons have been preached from First and Second Peter? How many stories of of the life of Peter has been proclaimed all over the earth. By the way, the Gospel of Mark written by John Mark. John Mark never met Jesus. Where did John Mark get his Gospel message? Scholars sort of agree it was from Simon Peter. In other words, in a very real sense, the Gospel of Mark is really almost the Gospel of Simon Peter. So how many times has the Gospel of Mark been preached and people for 2,000 years have heard the message and come into the kingdom of God? Here's my point. I want you to visualize this. It's, it's, it's train load after train load after train load after train load of men and women, boys and girls, red, yellow, black and white, every tribe, tongue and nation. I mean, we can't fathom the number of people that have been impacted because of the influence of Simon Peter. Train loads and train loads. And what what impacted me as I was sitting there studying this, transformation. Jesus took a train wreck and turned him into a freight train that impacted the world for over 2,000 years. Some people would call Peter a loser, but God turned him into a leader that's influenced. We can't even count the number. And I find that encouraging, that the ministry that Jesus has come to accomplish is a ministry of transformation, turning train wrecks into freight trains. I, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for a funny story. I, I just am, and I love the story about the farmer who uh, needed to go to the big city uh, to get money so he could plant next year's crop. And so he got his eight-year-old son in the old rickety truck, and they drove to Atlanta, and they were just mesmerized by the skyscrapers. And they got to the bank, they walked in, and again, they were just mesmerized by the marble wall and the chandelier they had never seen anything like that before and about that time this large really overweight lady came walking by and she had on an old raggedy dress and her hair was all unkept and and he couldn't help but smell her she smelled like a pig pen going by just just an awful sight and he watched in disbelief as she walked over to the marble wall and hit a button, and this little door slid open. And uh, he watched her step in what looked like a little room. And then she mashed another button, and the door was closed. And then he couldn't help but notice that above the door there were these numbers that began to light up, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And there was a pause, and it began to descend, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And there was another ding. The door opened up, and the most beautiful drop-dead gorgeous woman this farmer ever seen walked out of that room. 
long blonde hair, blue eyes, beautiful dress, lean high heel shoes. And he couldn't help but take a whiff when she passed by. She smelled like a field of daisies. Never seen anything like that before. And he grabbed his eight-year-old son by the hand and said, son, we're going home. And he looked a little confused and said, Daddy, I thought we came here to borrow money. He said, we don't have time for that. We're going to go home and we're going to get your mama and we're going to put her in that little room. I like that story because it's kind of visual. It's kind of radical. You step in, but you step out a different person. And that's the whole power of the gospel. If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Man, the old has passed away and everything becomes new. And, you know, I don't really know who all I'm speaking to this morning, but it may well be that there's someone in this service, a young person, an adult, for all I know, and you've been hitting the wall. You've been doing life your own way, and you've been hitting the wall, but the Spirit of God has been convicting you to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If any man, any woman, any young person be in Christ, he is a new creature. He'll change you. He turns train wrecks into freight trains. You know, I thought to myself, I might have somebody sitting in the service today who, well, you're here on vacation, and you're here at the beach because you're trying to save your marriage. Don't you know a lot of people certainly come to Myrtle Beach and, and the Grand Strand in a last-ditch effort, you know, to save the marriage. Let me ask you a question. You're, you're a believer. You've got a troubled home. Have you really brought your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I came across a verse that I've tried to hide in my heart since I've retired. It's Hebrews 1, 9. And it speaks about Jesus. It, it says, he, he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore, God set him above his companions and anointed him with the ointment of joy. You know what that verse means? Nobody ever walked the earth that had more joy than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he hungered for righteousness and lived a righteous, sinless life. And the fruit of that was joy, joy, joy down in his heart. And I, I just I just challenge you, if that's someone I'm speaking to this morning, bring your life under the Lordship of Jesus. Begin to love righteousness, love Jesus, love what Jesus is about. Hate the sin that's in your life. And watch Him transform a train-wrecked marriage into a marriage that can become a freight train of influence, of impact that brings glory to God. He can do it. Transformation. Notice the confrontation, confrontation in verse 1 to God's, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, we're talking about believers, strangers in the world, you might want to at least underline in your mind, strangers, aliens, scattered, you might want to underline that Word scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now here are here's some believers that Peter's writing to who woke up one day and said, Man, we're strangers in this world. We we just don't belong in this world. We don't fit into this world. 
And he says they're scattered all across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. What's going on? Why are they aliens and why are they scattered? If you look at verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We know that the church at that time was facing trials and persecution. Now the Romans had already started misinformation campaign. By the way, there's nothing new about misinformation. That, that's Satan's thing. He does it all the time. And this is what he's, the rumors he's been spreading about the church. They're atheists. Because they don't believe that Caesar is Lord. They don't believe in our God and our gods. They're atheists. They're cannibals. Yeah, they, they taught that. Christians are cannibals because they speak of eating and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. How gross is that? And then maybe even more sinister and ugly than that, they're guilty of incest because they say they love their brothers and their sisters. And these are the rumors being spread about the church. And so a persecution has come upon the believers and they find themselves having to scatter and to hide. But as Peter writes, James has been beheaded. It's not long after this that Peter himself is crucified on a cross upside down. And you probably know that Nero, what did Nero do to Rome, church? He burnt it to the ground. He had this urban renewal program that he presented to the Roman Senate. They rejected it. So he hired some thugs to set Rome on fire. And Rome burned for six days. And then the fire stopped. And then they were reignited and burned for another three days. So Rome burnt for nine days. 70% of Rome were flames ground. Thousands died in the flames. And hundreds of thousands were left homeless. The people were enraged. They wanted blood. And Nero, being a great politician, what did he do? He blamed it on somebody else. And he blamed it upon the church. And so now a state-sanctioned persecution has fallen upon those who love Jesus Christ. And this is just a matter of history. You can read it yourself. That they would take believers and they would crucify them by the thousands. You'd see them as you'd come into Rome. They would take spears and impale believers, dip them in tire, set them on fire, light the streets and the colonnades of Rome. They would cover believers like these young people who love Christ, like many of you, just cover them wild animals, put them in the gladiator arena, turn the tiger loose. They'd be disemboweled, eaten alive to cheering crowds. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians put to death most violently. And these believers made a discovery. If you experience a genuine transformation in Jesus Christ, you will find yourself with a confrontation with the world that you live in today. Jesus told us that. He said, the world hated me. Therefore, the world will what? Hate you. We're light. This world's darkness. And there's an inevitable conflict that we're going to face if we're honestly, genuinely walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suspect you already sense that today. If you uh, send these young people back to their high schools. 
or you sent your young people off to college and there they are in the university and they walk into their biology 101 class and they're talking about genetics, chromosomes. They're talking about science and, and gender and XX and XY. And your child speaks up a historical, biblical worldview about gender and say, I believe God created men, male and female. He created them, period. There's a good chance they'll be dismissed from that class. There's a good chance they'll be kicked out of that university. The crowd that speaks of tolerance is intolerant of the faith. Now, some of you today are businessmen. You move in business circles. You might even work in corporate America. Or you might teach in a university. I don't know who you are. But I know that if you go into a boardroom in America or you step into a major secular university and when the subject of marriage comes up, and it does all the time, and you espouse a historical, biblical view of marriage that God himself instituted marriage and it's to be a relationship between one man and one woman for one lifetime, You'll be looking for another job. And I could go on and on and talk about the current that we live in today. But it's like Paul said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil. It's all around us. We swim in it every day. And here's the here's the rub. These believers are sitting here thinking, Peter... Man, we've watched loved ones crucified. We, we've had dear friends thrown into the arena. What if it's me? What if it's me? And they come and they say, you either deny Christ or you're going to lose your head. You either deny Christ or you're going to be impaled and you're going to be a light lighting the street. What, what, what if in that moment in my humanity I'm intimidated and I cave and I deny Christ and I don't take my stand and I don't really live out for Christ? What if I compromise? Do I lose my salvation? Am I cast into the lake of fire? Is there no hope for me at all as I struggle to live in a very wicked, violent, hostile culture? Man, let's be honest. We, We deal with that today. There's not a person in this room that hasn't wanted to sometimes say something, but you hold back because, man, you don't want the wrath you know that will come. Well, Peter speaks this beautiful word of affirmation. I I, I could spend a month on this one little piece. But listen to this wonderful, loving affirmation that Peter makes to believers going through the storm. He says in verse 2, are y'all still with me, verse 2? Okay, three of you, I'll praise the Lord. Verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. One of the songs we sang this morning, it, it just itemized those wonderful truths right there. It kind of surprised me. Notice, God the Father chose us, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit sanctified us, and God the Son 
atoned for us through his blood on the cross, calling us into a life of obedience. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all involved in our salvation experience. But here Peter is emphasizing you have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God. The Apostle Paul says that we have been chosen from before the foundation of the earth. That means before there was time, space, and matter, this blows my mind, God already knew me, God already loved me, and God already chose me. Now, some people will say, now, Ted, that's a Presbyterian doctrine. That's a, that's a Calvinist doctrine. No, it's not. It's a biblical doctrine. You're going to have to deal with the sovereignty of God. If God's not sovereign, he's not God. He's sovereign, and he knows. And in the foreknowledge of God, man, he already knew me and loved me and chose me and was preparing that work of redemption in my life. Now, be careful, careful, careful. That does not absolve us of our responsibility. That does not negate free will. Anyone who dies and spends eternity in judgment does so because of their own will, their own choices, and their own volition. I got good news to tell you this morning. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, Ted, how do you, how do you harmonize the sovereignty of God with man's free will? Well, Charles Spurgeon said you don't have to reconcile friends. He said that the sovereignty of God and man's free will are the two rails upon which the gospel moves. And if you lose either one of those rails, you lose the true gospel of the scripture. I, I agree. This helps me comprehend this mystery that's honestly beyond my mind. Somebody said that salvation is like the door. Jesus says, I am the door. And above that door is a sign flashing, whosoever will may come. And here we are this morning, and we think in our hearts, oh, I'm, I've broken everything in my sin or my rebellion. I see that Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. If I'll just repent and believe, and right now it's in my heart, it's in my will, I, I repent and I'm trusting Jesus. Here is my life. Take it and have your way with me. And you walk through the door of salvation. And then when you look back, over that same door is another flashing sign that says chosen from before the foundation of the earth. But I want to encourage you this morning. Are you a believer? Man, you've been chosen. It's a mystery, but you've been chosen in the foreknowledge of God. But I, not only chosen, you're frozen. Chosen and frozen. Look at what he says in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance. Hey, we got an inheritance. You know, salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of our sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the truth, the unchanging truth of God's word to guide us. We got the hope of heaven when we die. You know, our inheritance, everything that we have in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to what he says about our inheritance. That can never, now that's an interesting word in the Greek. It means never. Never perish, spoil, or fade. 
Man, I love that. What God has given me and what God has given you, though you sometimes, hey, is, am I the only one in this room that as a believer has stumbled and fallen? Am I the only one in this room that at times may be cowed when I should have spoken up about my faith? Listen, what God has given me, whether I, I don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, it's grace. It cannot perish. It cannot spoil. It cannot fade. We are frozen into the kingdom of God and it's not going anywhere. Chosen and frozen and, and beholden. Chosen, frozen, and beholden. I love this. He says, kept in heaven for you. What God's given us is kept in heaven. Satan can't touch it. The demons can't reach it. You and I can't even mess it up. You see, it's kept for us in heaven and shielded or, or kept by God's power. You know why our salvation is so secure? It's not dependent on our ability to hang on to God. It's God's ability to hang on to us. I like the little story of uh, all of us have done it. We're walking our, our son, our daughter, our grandchildren across the parking lot. You reach out, and in their own will, they take hold of your hand. And you walk with them side by side. And let's say suddenly a dog jumps out behind a car and alarmed and startled, they let go of your hand because they want to run away and save themselves, right? But in that moment, what did they discover? It's more than they took hold of your hand. More importantly, you took hold of their hand. They might let go, but you're not letting go. And you wrap them up in your arms and you keep them safe from all alarm. That's what Peter is saying to us. Listen, you're facing trials. You stumble and you fall. You're, you're in the heat of the storm of the Christian life. Be encouraged. You've been chosen. God in His grace has frozen you into the kingdom. And God be holding on to you. And I know that's terrible English. But it's great theology. God be holding on to you, brother. God's holding on to you. And then finally, jubilation. Jubilation. Look at what he says in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I'm so glad he told us that. Peter is a likening our faith to ore put in the fire. You know, the goldsmith would take the ore and put it in the fire and turn the ore into liquid. But it was full of impurities. And so being a goldsmith, he would slowly heat up degree by degree and burn off all the impurities of the gold. And the goldsmith would know when the gold was ripe and ready and perfect. He could look into the gold and see the perfect unblemished reflection of his own faith. What Peter is saying to us 
remember what God has given you, you won't lose it. But even now as you're in the fire, know there's a purpose in it all. That God is burning out the dross, whatever you're going through. God, it's not like God's unaware your battle of cancer. It's not like God's unaware of your financial struggles. It's not like God's unaware of the persecution you're facing. God is sovereign and in control. And degree by degree, whether we like it or not, He's burning off the impurities so that He can look upon us and see that beautiful reflection of His own face. And then we are ready to meet Him in the air. I heard about a fraternity they found this really creative way to haze their uh, pledges. They took this gentleman off campus. They took him to the well that they considered the bottomless well. I mean, you could look down the well, and you, you couldn't see the bottom. And it was so deep, you could drop a pebble. You'd never hear a splash. You'd never hear a thud. And they told everybody this is a bottomless well. And then they took the inductee and tied a knot on the end of a rope and made them hang on to that rope and lowered them down, down, down into the dark abyss and then tied it off. They greased the rope so you couldn't climb your way up. And then the fraternity brothers just left them, went back to the party and left them hanging in the middle of a bottomless well. Well, you can imagine five minutes into it, hands are beginning to really hurt. Ten minutes into it, his his arms are numb. He said, hey guys, this isn't funny. Somebody come and help me. I can't hold on much longer. And, he, and in fear and anxiousness, he keeps holding and holding. Fifteen minutes into it, his back's about to break. And finally realizing nobody's there. There's no help to come. And at the end of his strength and terror, he just finally loses his grip and he falls and he falls Six inches into the bottom. Y'all get that? What they did, what they did, they had figured out how to lower the rope into that darkness. Couldn't see where you're only going to fall about six inches. You're hanging on to the rope. You're in terror. And all you got to do is let go of the rope and just rest until they come. You know, that's something I think of what Peter is saying to us. The enemy wants us to live in fear that we're not good enough, that we've stumbled and we're fallen. Satan wants us to think that we absolutely have no hope. I think what he would say to us today is, hey, let go of the rope of fear. Let go of the rope of doubt. Let go of the the rope of guilt and shame and rest in the salvation that's right there under your feet. That God loves you. He has chosen you. He has sent the Holy Spirit to convict you and quicken you. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to atone for your sin. And as you have believed on him, you've been added into the kingdom of God. And he's given you a gift that cannot go away. He holds you in the palm of his hand. No one can pluck you out of his hand. Just rest in the goodness and the grace of God. And somebody would say, but that would motivate ungodliness and disobedience no it doesn't it motivates love and obedience listen if i if i if i had a heart attack and i'm in the hospital 
and I'm about to lose my job, and I'm about to lose my house, and you show up, and in your generosity, you pay off my home. And you take care of my kids going to college. And you you begin to get me through the storm. You've been good to me. You've been loving to me. And now I'm better. And now I hear you've got cancer. And I say, is there anything I can do for you? And he says, well, I need somebody to cut my grass. Do you think I'm going to blow you off? I said, I ain't got time to cut your grass. You have loved me. You have cared for me. And when you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, it doesn't motivate you to live in sin. It motivates you to live a godly life that honors the one who's loved you more than anybody else. To rest in the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord.